I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we speak with Roxandra Hera about choroidal neovascularization and with Alistair Fielder about a precipitous drop in strabismus surgery. It came about from a rather casual observation that we seem to be doing less strabismus surgery than we used to be doing. First this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. In order to treat choroidal neovascularization, we need to understand what we are treating, what is actually going on in a choroidal neovascular membrane. Dr. Roxandra Hera and her colleagues sought to answer this question by measuring mRNA expression of four angiogenic factors and two angiogenic factor receptors in excised choroidal neovascular membranes. Surgical removal of 24 subfoveal membranes from 24 patients was performed. Keep in mind, the actual levels of the angiogenic factors were not assessed, only mRNA production. This was a highly technical study, and rather than give a lengthy introduction, I have inserted some editorial comments directly into the interview, which I hope will elucidate some of the important points. Let's start out with Dr. Harris' description of the study. The purpose of this study was to measure mRNA levels of VEGF and angiopoietins in surgically excised subfoveal membranes of AMD and to evaluate their relevance as prognosis markers of post-surgical recurrence of CNV. The study itself is a prospective observational case series of 24 patients, mean age 70, with classing CNV of AMD diagnosed less than six months previously. 24 subfavial membranes, one eye per patient, were surgically removed and collected. 13 patients underwent recurrence of CNV within six months of surgery. What are the important angiogenic factors that are involved in choroidal neovascularization? There are uh, two family of factors that we study in this study. Firstly, the vascular endothelial growth factors, and secondly, angiopoietins. Uh, there are uh, many isoforms of VOGs. VAGF-A and VAGF-B are potent mutagens for vascular endothelial cells. Their effects are mediated through binding to tyrosine kinase receptors 
named VEGs R1 and VEGs R2, which are almost exclusively expressed in the vascular endothelium. Angiopoietins constitute a second class of angiogenic factors characterized more recently. They bind to a common tyrosine kinase membrane receptors named TI2, which, like uh, VRGF receptors, is specifically expressed in endothelial cells. Dr. Hera has introduced the cast of characters, four angiogenic factors and two angiogenic factor receptors. The angiogenic factors are vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF-A and VEGF-B, and the angiopoietins, angiopoietin-1 and angiopoietin-2. We'll explore the role each plays later in the interview. Dr. Hera has also introduced the two VEGF receptors, VEGF-R1 and VEGF-R2. Let's go back to the interview. Roxandra, in the paper, you make reference to neuropillin. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. Neuropillin has uh, it's a protein who has no kinase activity, and it's uh, generally considered as a coreceptor that increased the affinity of VGF for its uh, signaling receptors. What neuropillin does basically is it potentiates the the effect of VEGF. Does that sound right? Yes, indeed. Your paper showed a very large range in the expression of mRNA for the angiogenic factors and, and for their receptors. Yes. Why do you think that, that, um, that we saw such a, such a large range in expression? I think more than, more than three log units, right? Yes, it's, uh, it was unexpected, but it's likely to result from heterogeneity um, of the samples rather than from technical imprecision. The, because as you see in the paper, the membrane, uh, the, the, the largest length of this membrane was between 1.5 and 4 millimeters, so it's like uh, quite, quite heterogeneous. And uh, the um, evolutions of the symptoms of the patients was uh, between uh, 1 and 6 months. So the samples, I think, were quite heterogeneous. As Dr. Harris says, the mRNA expression for these angiogenic factors varied a great deal between samples. She feels that this variability reflects the heterogeneity of the choroidal neovascular membranes. But there are two ways in which patients were heterogeneous. Some had very large membranes and some had much smaller ones. But also, some patients had mature fibrotic membranes and some patients had more active, less stable choroidal neovascular membranes. Could it be that the larger membranes mean more angiogenic factor mRNA? Or could mRNA expression mean something else? There is not correlation between uh, the uh, level expressions of gene and the size of membrane, which I think is correlated to, uh, with the stage of the, the angiogenesis proce uh, process. That, that you think that the expression of the, of the mRNA uh, corresponds with the stage of the choroidal neovascular membrane? Yes, I think. Was the expression of the mRNA for the angiogenic factors and for the receptors of, of the factors equal, or was one of them greater than the other? No, it's a quite interesting observation that we find. is the imbalance in the levels of expressions of angiopoietins. The quantitative measurements of the expression levels of these two factors revealed that in most membranes, 
NGO1 mRNAs were uh, two time, uh, t uh, ten times more abundant than NGO2. We speculate this because uh, NGO2 stimulates the destabilizations of blood vessels and the uh, initiations of the angiogenic response, whereas uh, NGO13 uh, participates in vessel stabilization. This is an important point. At the start of the interview, Dr. Hera named four angiogenic factors, VEGF-A, VEGF-B, angiopoietin-1, and angiopoietin-2. Now we see their roles begin to differ. Angiopoietin-1 is postulated to contribute to vascular stability, not to the initiation of neovascularization. In contrast, angiopoietin-2, the mRNA for which was detected at much lower levels, is felt to be a destabilizing agent, that is to say, Angiopotin 2 may act as a signal for the initiation of neovascularization. We speculate that uh, this observation supports the, the hypothesis of the presence of mature and stabilized rather than hyperproliferative vessels in this advanced stage of AMD. So in some contexts, the factors that we generally think of as angiogenic factors, things like VEGF and uh, some of the angiopoietins can act to, to stabilize vessel growth and that it's only in the, in the context of destabilizing factors that these angiogenic factors can then stimulate the, the production of neovascularization. Yes. Did, did you find that, that expression of mRNA for, uh, let's say, VEGF uh, A and VEGF B was equal to the expression of the receptors for VEGF, like VEGF R1 and VEGF R2, or was the, the expression of one of these things greater than the expression of the other? Their expressions were barely detectable. The receptors sorry, the, the, of, uh, even of uh, VOGF or angiopoietins were um, barely detectable. To clarify Dr. Hare's answer here, she is not saying that the mRNA expression for the angiogenic factors is barely detectable. She's saying that the mRNA expression for the receptors is barely detectable. We think that uh, this uh, must, may just reflect the, the low relative abundance of vascular endothelial cells in these membranes as compared with pigment epithelial cells and fibroblasts. While the VEGF is expressed by a few variety of cells, particularly fibroblasts, via IGF receptors are and um, angiopoietins are almost exclusively expressed uh, in a vascular endothelium. That's an interesting point, and I and I just want um, want to want to ask you to to clarify it once more. Um, wh which are the, are the tissues that you feel are producing the the angiogenic factors, the the VEGF and the angiopoietins? Uh, VLGF is expressed uh, by um, fibroblasts, pigment epithelial cells, and the cellular cells, while their receptors, the, uh, either the EGF1, receptor 1 and 2, are, are expressed only by, uh, by endothelial cells. The parameter that you measured was expression of mRNA. Does more expression mean more production of VEGF? Uh, a caution it's needed in the, in the interpretation because uh, increased mRNA levels are not systematically correlated with increased protein levels. The amount of protein is a combined result from translation, stability, and turnover rate, so all these steps are potentially regulated. 
in the paper, one of the things that you say is that a high expression of VEGF in the subfovial membranes from ARMD patients appears to correlate with a lower risk of post-surgical recurrence of the neovascular membrane. And I'm, I'm wondering why that's true. We are, uh, we are also surprised by this result, but um, we think that the effects of VEGF are highly dependent on the context of other angiogenic factors. Did you get that? Patients who had greater expression of VEGF had a lower recurrence of choroidal neovascularization after surgical removal of their choroidal neovascular membranes. Dr. Harrow believes that this is further evidence that VEGF in mature choroidal neovascular membranes is acting as a stabilizing factor. Because VEGF prevents apoptosis of endothelial cells, it is thought to play a role in the maintenance of the mature endothelium, a tissue that has an extremely slow turnover rate. Depending on the absence of the, or the presence of pericyte at the surface of neovessels, VOGF may promote active neovascularization or support endothelial cell survival in presence of angiopoietin 1. So the expressions of angiopoietin 1 being larger uh, to that of angiopoietin 2 uh, it is tempting to speculate that is the stage of disease prog- that in this stage the blood capillary are mostly mature and therefore less susceptible to to reinitiate active neoangiogenesis. Meaning that that these angiogenic factors are operating in a in a more complicated fashion than we than we first thought. That it's not that more VEGF means more neovascular growth. That in some contexts. VEGF yes. may may serve as a as a stabilizing factor, uh, and that um, in in certain contexts, perhaps in r- relation to production of angiopoietin two uh, as a as a destabilizing factor, that in that context that VEGF is going to stimulate the this neovascular growth, but that in that in other settings that VEGF may may actually serve as a as a stabilizing factor. Exactly. In this context, we have uh, more angiopoietin 1, so we can uh, thought that VEGF may act as a promoter of vessel stability. Very interesting. Uh, in, in the same way that there are angiogenic factors, are there, um, are there angiostatic factors? Yes, with pigment epithelium derivative factor, transbospondin 1, and uh, endostatin have been shown to be present uh, in the vitreous of patients with retinopathies and uh, decreased vitreous concentrations of uh, pigment epithelium derivative factor has been correlated to CNV due to AMD. For me, this was a very, very interesting paper. Uh, I, I previously had what I now realize to, to have been a, a very simple-minded view of, of the way that angiogenic factors work. And um, and I I at least learned that it's a much much more complicated picture than I thought. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Roxandra, thank you very much. Thank you. Too. Au revoir. Au revoir. In editing this interview, a question occurred to me: If VEGF can stabilize mature choroidal neovascular membranes, what will VEGF blocking medication do in these patients? Roxandra Hera is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Grenoble, France. 
Her paper, Expression of VEGF and Angiopoietins in Subfoveal Membranes from Patients with Age-Related Macular Degeneration, appears in the April 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. The number of patients undergoing strabismus surgery seems to have declined. Ophthalmology residents are having an increasingly difficult time meeting their required number of strabismus cases to complete their residencies. But is this just anecdotal, or is there a real decline in the number of these procedures? Dr. Alistair Fielder tells us that the decline is profound and widespread. Well, it just it came about from a rather casual observation that we seem to be doing less strabismus surgery than we used to be doing. So I contacted a, a colleague who'd worked in ophthalmic service research. This is a number of years ago. And we gained access to national data. This is in the UK. Basically, it's data of all um, surgical procedures uh, undertaken in the UK on the, uh, within the National Health Service. So it excludes private operations, which we actually examined separately. The reason for this study was that there was anecdotal evidence that strabismus cases had been declining. Yep, that's right. And you also looked at data from Ontario, Canada. Yeah, that's right. We, well, one of, our, one of, our, of the authors, Brian Williams, has done a lot of health service research in Canada. And he's also done a lot of work on uh, private practice in the UK. And he was able to obtain that data. So we just thought it would be interesting to see whether it was a UK specific issue or whether it might possibly be occurring in other countries also. Did indeed the study show a decline in strabismus surgery? Yes, it did. First of all, looking at the UK data, it showed an overall decline. Now, the weakness of this data is that it's quite difficult to tease out individual procedures because, as you can imagine, if you're collecting data of every single operation performed in a country of 50 or 60 million, that data isn't necessarily relatively crude. Uh, But nevertheless, it does give a a pretty powerful indication that strabismus surgery in children, which is 0 to 16 years, has declined. And that, of course, is not only supported by our anecdotal evidence before, but one or two other publications as well, one notably from Scotland. And what was the magnitude of the decline in the UK? About 41%, pretty massive. That's a a huge Over a 10-year period, should I say. Was there a decline in the numbers from Ontario, Canada, too? Yes, it was slightly less. It was 26%. You had mentioned a previous study that was done in Scotland. Did that study, too, show a decrease in the number of strabismus cases? Yes, absolutely. First of all, there was a study in Oxford reported, uh, which is a fairly small region in the UK, which supported, reported a reduction of 42%. And then there was this very good study from Scotland, which reported a 58% reduction. Was the decrease uniform, or did certain procedures show a more precipitous drop than others? Well, it was pretty, it was pretty uniform, although there were one or two procedures that increased. Not surprisingly, there was a switch to bimedial recessions for infantile esotropia, uh, so it's not at all surprising that increased. There was also a very small increase in adjustable sutures, uh, again, not, perhaps not surprising because in 2004, adjustable sutures, certainly in the UK, were not very widely used under the age of 16. But I think if we did a study at this stage, we'd probably find quite a considerable increase between you know, age 13 to 16 years. 
but by and large, the, 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 the uh, drop was fairly uniform. In terms of the etiology for the decline, uh, birth rates both in the UK and in Canada have been, have been going down. Could okay. this have been the source of the, of the drop in, in these surgeries? Well, we didn't think so because uh, the decline in birth rate was considerably less. But, of course, the decline in birth rate is going to be out of sync uh, to a certain extent with the decline in uh, surgery. You know, there has to be a time lag. Um, but certainly we didn't, we didn't think it, could be related. it couldn't be fully accounted for by the decline in birth rate. The data that you present here are all from the British National Health Service, from the yeah. Public Health Service. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether the decline could be just a representation of a shift of, of these cases from the, the public sector to the, the private sector. Could this have been the ideology of, of, the, of the drop in, in these cases? Sure. I mean, that's been suggested a number of times, and we've uh, wondered it ourselves. However, on a sort of personal basis, one hasn't noticed any change. And certainly when we analysed the data from the independent sector, we found a decrease of 63%. So I have to say that we were only able to obtain data on two years of the, the, of the decade. However, if there's a decline of 63% over those two years, for there to be an increase, a sudden increase in the other years would be, you know, it's a little bit unlikely. One of the points that, that you make in the, in the, in the paper is, is that if there were a dramatic shift in a, a movement of these patients from the public to the private sector or some other shift in the uh, coding for these data, that one wouldn't see the this, this sort of secular trend uh, that that your that your that your data show. So if if the if the declining birth rates aren't the entire picture, if the uh, switch from the public to the to the private sector is probably not representing uh, a part of this drop uh, in these in these surgical numbers, what do you think that the that the etiology is uh, for the great decrease uh, in these surgeries? Well, this is a real problem because we spend a lot of time thinking about this. Partly because there has been a rise in increase in survival of babies born low birth weight, for instance. And we know that those such babies are very much more likely to develop a strabismus than full-term babies. So we, we were actually rather surprised by that. Another, another aspect that has been suggested in this country is the introduction of preschool vision screen on a nationwide basis. However, if that was the reason, that then would have expected the decrease to have occurred about a decade or so earlier, because preschool vision screening came very came in very much earlier than the period of the study. We 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 cannot come up with a definitive answer, although one factor that may contribute to it and it may account wholly for it, but we're quite unable to say, is perhaps the very much more enthusiastic uh, correction of refractive errors and amblyopia that people are doing these days. That's, it's not solid evidence. Meaning that, that there's a greater tendency now to correct the, the full hyperopic error rather than, 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 than just doing something partially with these children. That's absolutely so. But I have to say, I, I personally have some doubt that that is the full explanation. One of the reasons that, that's been put forth is is that uh, fewer of these surgeries are now being done by uh, general ophthalmologists. That there, there, uh, that, that a larger number is being done by people who are specially pediatrically trained, and that maybe what we're seeing here is not a 
decrease in first cases, but a decrease in, in re-ops? Well, that, that certainly is a possibility, and I'm afraid we would be unable to um, tease that out. Uh, you know, our data just don't allow us to, to look at that in any, in any way. Um, but certainly in the UK, as, in, in, as I guess every other country, there's been a, a great tendency to subspecialize so that uh, almost all strabismal surgery under the age of 16 is now done by uh, people who are specialists in pediatric ophthalmology. In the UK, it has been the, the the decrease has been so dramatic. It is actually it has had a major impact on training young surgeons, and and really one ha, one really has to work very very hard to ensure that uh, training ophthalmologists get adequate training in strabismus surgery. And I would guess in the future it, it may be that not all all ophthalmologists will have such training. But the other aspect that occurs to me that may be the decrease in strabismus surgery reflects some change in the incidence of strabismus, which reflects in turn the uh, health of children today rather than, rather than our management of the, of, the, of the problem. Dr. Fielder, thank you very okay. much. Okay, that's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Alistair Fielder is Professor of Ophthalmology at City University, London, England. His paper, Decreasing Strabismus Surgery, appears in the April 2005 British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Fielder, Dr. Hera, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the beginning of a conversation in which you can participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275. Or Skype, JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found at our website, asseenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.